Lord, we are truly in awe of your great faithfulness, and it's such a joy and a delight to be together as the people of God and to sing together of these truths we believe in, and I'm thankful, Lord, for the hearts here that have been affected by your mercy, that have believed in your faithfulness, that can sing in faith these truths. And Lord, we come to you just confessing once again our need. Um, We ask you to show your faithfulness today, to be merciful to us today, to bless us today by um, renewing our love for Christ and expanding our, our grasp of how marvelous your grace towards us really is. So Lord, be faithful to us now. Work in our lives for your glory, for our joy. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10 this morning. Our lives in this modern age are very full of activity. Our lives are busy with work, busy with kids, right? Busy with uh, house projects, busy with paying bills and figuring out our schedule and all of the different things we juggle. But the Christian life is especially busy. On top of all that normal life stuff, we as believers are really embroiled in this cosmic war. We're in a battle, a daily battle against spiritual opposition, against false and dangerous ideas. We're engaged in a conflict. We're engaged in a war against the subtle and sometimes not so subtle sins that reside in our own flesh. As we saw last week from Luke 10, we've been called to a mission. We engage in the proclamation of the gospel and making disciples and investing ourselves in relationships with other people for the sake of spiritual growth. We're studying, we're praying, we're serving We are rightly immersed in the ministry that Christ has called us to. Our lives are very full. But in the midst of all this, there's a danger. There's a propensity we have, a trap we might fall into, of actually forgetting the main thing. To move on from the gospel and perhaps become distracted from the central message of grace of the great salvation that we have received through Jesus Christ. And it's easy for us to do this. It's easy for us to look for our joy in all of these good things, but secondary things, especially when those good secondary things often provide a certain measure of joy. But listen, there is no greater source of joy for us than our salvation. That is the main thing. And in our text today, Jesus calls us, urges us to relocate our focus. He shows us that the only true and unchanging source of joy is the grace of God that's been given to us. So we must rejoice first and always in our salvation. Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 24 offers us three salvation realities, three different three different aspects of this salvation we have experienced. And each of them calls us to joy. The first is found in verses 17 through 20. I'll read the text. Verse 17, Luke writes, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions And over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
We are called to rejoice first and always in our salvation. And the first salvation reality, the first aspect of this salvation that Jesus points us to is that we are to rejoice in our spiritual standing. Our spiritual standing, our status as believers is that our names are written in heaven. Just to remind ourselves of where we're at contextually in the story, prior to this dialogue, Jesus had sent out the 72 witnesses to proclaim the kingdom of God. We see that in the first few verses of chapter 10. He sends out these 72 others. They were called, according to verse 2, to be laborers in his harvest. And this was a risky mission. Verse 3 says they're sent out like lambs in the midst of wolves. And this mission would require, require a lot of faith on their part. They had to trust the Lord for protection. They had to trust the Lord for provision. They were told not to take a money bag, not to take an extra pair of sandals, not to take a bag of supplies, but rather to depend on the Lord. As they went out on this mission, there were some who would embrace their message. They were to heal and, and proclaim the kingdom of God has come near, verse 11, or verse 9 rather. But there's others that would reject their message others that would not receive them. They were to wipe the dust off their feet and warn them of the judgment of God that would come on everyone who rejects the gospel. This was the mission they had been sent out to accomplish. And now these 72 are returning and they make their report to Jesus with joy. Verse 17, the 72 returned with joy. They are excited, they are encouraged, they are eager to tell Jesus and give this report about all the amazing things that had happened, especially their spiritual victories. Verse 17, they return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. As we've seen in Luke's gospel, Jesus often exercised authority over demons, over these unclean spirits, fallen angels that followed Satan and rebelled against the rule and reign of God. And as Jesus comes, he often casts out these demons. He exercises his authority over them to display his divine power, to show who he is, that he's the son of God, but also to illustrate the nature of his kingdom. He's preaching the kingdom and illustrating the nature of that kingdom, forcibly illustrating that the kingdom of God was drawing near. And in order for the kingdom of God to be established, it requires the tearing down, the dismantling of the kingdom of darkness. So that's bad news for Satan, bad news for his servants. But it's very good news for those that are in spiritual bondage. We see this all throughout Jesus' ministry. Now, the 12, the, the, the 12 that Jesus had called to follow him, the disciples whom he would name apostles, they were also granted a measure of authority over the demons. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, Jesus sends these 12 out on a similar mission. As his representatives, they were commissioned to go preach and to perform signs that illustrated and authenticated the gospel message. So they would heal people and cast out demons as well. And now these 72, this larger group, had experienced something similar. As they're preaching the gospel, these demonic adversaries to the kingdom of God had no choice but to submit. No choice but to give way as their kingdom is being invaded by the servants of Christ. So the joy of these 72 is understandable. They had stepped out in faith, right? They had done what Christ had asked them to do and God had protected them. God had used them greatly. They're seeing marvelous success. Their simple act of faith and obedience has been empowered by Christ and there's been incredible consequence 
as a result of them going out. So they're rejoicing in this, but notice how Jesus responds in verse 18. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. This language actually echoes another passage of scripture. Several hundred years before this, the prophet Isaiah had written in Isaiah 14 this this sort of sanctified trash talk. He's deriding the wicked and arrogant king of Babylon in Isaiah 14, 12. It says, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. This passage is often understood to not only describe the fall of the king of Babylon, but also to be a veiled description of of the fall of Satan himself. And Jesus may be referencing this ancient fall, telling his disciples, listen, you guys are experiencing the spiritual victory. You're seeing the enemies of God be, be triumphed over. Look, I was there in the beginning. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. These spiritual victories are nothing new to me. I've been winning for a long time. Welcome to the party. But there's also a sense in which something really is happening progressively during Jesus's ministry. And just like the lightning flashes forth repeatedly, suddenly, each one of the spiritual encounters that these 72 have had is really striking a blow against the kingdom of darkness. The preaching of the gospel has resulted in decisive and emphatic victories over the servants of Satan. And Jesus recognizes this. He sees it and he affirms their experience. He says, yes, authority has indeed been given to you. Look back in verse 19. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Scorpions and serpents here appears to be a symbolic reference to the powers of darkness. It's symbolic for evil. So even though these 72 were like lambs going out in the midst of wolves, Jesus says, I've given you authority and nothing shall hurt you. This phrase is so vivid in the Greek language, it's actually a triple negative. Nothing can never hurt you, not at all. He is tripling down on this to say you are safe in the hands of God. It's, it's similar to what Paul encourages us with in Romans chapter 8, that there's nothing in heaven or on earth that can separate us from the love of God. So he's affirming this because Christ's power and authority is at work in them. They are protected by God. This idea of protection is seen in Psalm 91. For those who make their refuge in God, those who, tr- who trust in him, It says, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the most high who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague shall come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. It's a poisonous snake. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. By the authority of Christ, These witnesses are sharing in Jesus' march of victory. And stepping on snakes, by the way, is something that Jesus is all about. 
you go back to Genesis chapter 3, God had promised that the seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman, would crush the head of the serpent. And Jesus is the one who will fulfill this promise. But as he gathers followers and as he engages us in his mission, we get to participate in his victory. 2 Corinthians 2.14, Paul writes, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And this triumphal procession is the victory march of a returning Roman general with all of his soldiers and all the captives. We are with Jesus in his victory. Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So Jesus affirms they are indeed empowered and protected and they're participating in his victory over the enemy. And all that is wonderful. All that is amazing. All that is great. But then Jesus redirects their focus. Verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The source of our joy, what we rejoice in, is our spiritual status, that our names are written in heaven. As wonderful and as amazing as their experience may be, it should not be the primary source of their joy. Jesus points them to something greater. They're to rejoice that their names are written in heaven. He says, this is to be the object of your joy. This is to be the subject of your rejoicing. Their names are written. They have been written in permanent ink in heaven. The question is, by who? Who writes our names in heaven? Well, we don't do that. We are not in heaven. We do not have the authority to mark out who is a member of the heavenly community. That's God's doing. Jesus is referring to their salvation. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, we see a reference to this book. It says, at that time, your people, the people that belong to God, the people that have relationship with him, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. To have your name written in the book means you have a relationship with God. You belong to him. You're his. If your name is not written in heaven, you're in grave danger. Revelation 20 verse 15 says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. To have your name written in the book is a matter of eternal salvation. It means that you belong there. It means that heaven is your destiny. The author of Hebrews refers to believers in Hebrews 12, 23 as the assembly of the firstborn, those called out by Christ who belong to Christ, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Jesus has called us together, gathered us together as his church. We are enrolled in heaven. It is our home. It's the place of our true citizenship. The success of their ministry was great. Their experiences of power and authority are truly amazing but they pale in comparison to the glory of their salvation. He says, this is what you should be rejoicing in. We have to ask ourselves the question, why does Jesus say this to them? Why does he seek to redirect their focus? It's not that it's wrong to rejoice when God uses us in the ministry. It's not that it's wrong to rejoice in the winds and and the fruit that we see. But listen, there is a danger if we start to focus more on what we do for God than on what he has done for us. That's the spiritual danger. There's a danger of of having our our gaze and our our mindset so wrapped up in what we're supposed to be doing 
And again, last week we saw we have this great mission. We're called to participate in sharing the gospel and we see the kingdom advance as we share the love of Christ. We offer hope through the gospel. We offer, we offer peace with God. We warn people of judgment. We give ourselves to this mission. But we can't ever be more consumed with our task than we are amazed by what God has done, by his doing. If we get our our mindset, allow our mindset to be consumed by the wrong things. If we lose that focus on our salvation, there, there's dangers. There's a danger of spiritual pride. If we start comparing ourselves with other people, other people who may not have the same gifts that we have, other people who may not have contributed as much as we have uh, to the kingdom, other people who may not be as invested or who may not have sacrificed as much as us, we start comparing ourselves. There's also a danger of becoming discouraged because here's the reality. Sometimes we don't see all that success. Sometimes in this life, we're going to win some. We're also going to lose some. The source of our joy can't be the ups and downs of the Christian life, the ups and downs of the church, the ups and downs of even our own sanctification as we wrestle with our own sin. No, our joy needs to be tethered to the unchanging reality of our salvation, that our names are written in heaven. So what is it that you rejoice in? What is it that captures your focus? Are you more aware of Christ's victories than your own? Are you more aware, to flip it around, of Christ's sufferings than your own? Some of you may be riding high this morning. Everything's going right in your life. You have so much to praise God for and give thanks for. Some of you may come into the room saying, there's nothing going right in my life right now. But listen, if your name is written in heaven, that's the unchanging source of joy for you. Are you more aware of what's being gained in heaven than you are aware of what you might be gaining or losing in this life? Friends, this is what Jesus calls us to focus on. He says we rejoice in our spiritual status, the fact that our names are written in heaven. He calls us to a heightened awareness of the grace that has been granted to us, a heightened awareness of the judgment that's been diverted from us. The judgment we should have experienced has actually been poured out on Christ. Jesus had to die so that our names could be written in heaven. How often do your thoughts turn to these realities, your spiritual standing, your citizenship in heaven? How often does that truth fill you with joy? Listen, nothing can produce and sustain joy like the gospel. Nothing. This is a better source of joy than the temporary successes and blessings of life. And it's sometimes the only source of joy amidst the sufferings and the disappointments of life. Jesus calls us to rejoice in our spiritual standing. There's a second thing he calls us to rejoice in. We rejoice, number two, in God's sovereign grace. We rejoice in God's sovereign grace. Look in verse 21 and 22. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. 
We're told on several occasions in the gospel stories that Jesus wept. We see him weeping when Lazarus dies. We see him weeping over the hard-heartedness of Jerusalem, their unwillingness to receive him as their Messiah. Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. But here we find Jesus overflowing with joy. We find Jesus rejoicing. When it says that he rejoiced, this is a vivid, intensive word describing that Jesus is exulting, that he is thrilled with joy as he rejoices in the Holy Spirit, spilling out in praise and thanksgiving to his Father. And it causes us to, to seek to explore this. Why is Jesus rejoicing? He's on his way to the cross. There's many at this point who are not believing in him. We see this in verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Jesus is on the way to the cross. There's many who are rejecting him. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but here he rejoices. Why? Why does Jesus rejoice? He rejoices because the Father's gracious will is being fulfilled in the salvation of sinners. That's why he rejoices. God is doing exactly what he planned to do. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven on earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them, revealed these things to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It's God's will to reveal, and it's also God's will at times to conceal, to hide these things. These things refers to the good news of the kingdom. These things refers to the truth of his identity, that he's the Messiah, the Son of God. It refers to the message of salvation that Jesus is there to proclaim. And these things have been hidden from the so-called wise, the so-called understanding, the proud residents of Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum, the scribes and the Pharisees who thought they knew better than Jesus, who thought they already had it all figured out and that they didn't need a Savior. It's been concealed from them, but these things, the good news of the kingdom, the truth of Christ's identity, his message of salvation, it's been revealed to little children, meaning those that are needy, those that are simple, those who may lack understanding, but they're receptive to the help that's being offered to them. It's been revealed to others. We see the same contrast of people's response to the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Why does God reveal the truth to some and conceal it from others? Well, Jesus gives us the answer. The Father has done this. He's hidden it from some, revealed it to others. Why? For such was your gracious will. This is God's sovereign plan. It is literally his good pleasure. It pleases him. It's what he wants to do. And Jesus is rejoicing in this. He's rejoicing in God's sovereign grace. There's two important truths that this teaches us. One is that salvation is ultimately 
according to God's choosing. It's according to his will. His sovereignty is being highlighted here. Jesus rejoices because God's plan to save his elect is being accomplished. The sovereign outworking of God's will brings glory to the Father. It brings joy to Jesus. He delights in this. But second, it shows that this salvation is something that is not just sovereign in its nature, but it's according to God's good pleasure. It's his gracious will. It pleases him. And this is so important. We have to understand that Jesus is not some reluctant savior. Maybe you feel like he is sometimes. Like he just barely puts up with you and he admits you into the family. He admits you into the church. He admits you into the kingdom because technically he has to if you repent of your sins and trust in Christ. But he really doesn't like you very much. Jesus is not some reluctant savior. It pleases him to save those whom he saves. God does not save us out of some duty or obligation. And this doctrine of God's sovereign grace, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, it is not some cold, sterile, philosophical doctrine. It is God's personal expression of love for his elect, that he loved you enough to die for you and to choose you and reveal himself to you. There is warmth and joy and love that is overflowing in this text as Jesus rejoices that God has saved these simple and weak and needy people because this is his gracious will. It pleases him to do so. This sovereign grace becomes even more clear as we read on. Look in verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. This is a statement of Christ's divinity. Not just our Father. Jesus says, my Father. He has a unique relationship. And he is the anointed Messiah, the King of kings, to whom all things are given over. This shows us the supremacy of Christ. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Jesus has unique access to God. The fullness of Christ's glory is only grasped by God. They have this mutual knowledge of one another, this relationship that is unique because Jesus is God. He is one with the Father. Though distinct in his personhood, they share the same essence. He says, no one knows who the Father is except the Son. No, no one fully grasps the, the glory of who Jesus is except the Father. And no one exhaustively can comprehend the glory of the Father except the Son. There's this Trinitarian relationship here as Christ rejoices in the Spirit, in his knowledge of the Father and the Father's knowledge of the Son. But then notice this last phrase. Here's what I want to focus on. He said, no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Listen, true knowledge of God can only come through Jesus Christ. Those who reject Jesus, the cults of Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, others who reject the divinity of Jesus Christ, they don't know the true God. We don't worship the same God. No one can know God except through Jesus Christ. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus reveals God to us 
John 14, 9, Jesus says to Philip, have you been with me so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So true knowledge of God only comes through Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we know God through Jesus. And who is it who receives this knowledge of God? Through Jesus. Who is it that knows who Jesus is and grasps who Jesus is so that they might actually know who God is and have a saving relationship with God? Jesus says it's only those whom he chooses. We've already seen this truth in Luke chapter 8, a few pages back in verse 9. Following that parable of of the the sower and the seed that falls on different types of soil, Jesus explains it to the disciples. When they ask him what this parable meant, he said, Verse 10, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Listen, scripture teaches us that salvation is a gift of grace that God gives to whom he wills. Romans chapter 9, verse 15, God says to Moses, Paul's quoting here from the Old Testament, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It is the will of God that directs the outpouring of the grace and the mercy and the compassion of God. We see this fleshed out in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13, verse 48. It says, when the Gentiles heard the preaching of the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. God's sovereign plan of salvation continues to be worked out in time. Revelation 17, 14 says, those who are with Christ are called chosen and faithful. James 2, 5, the half-brother of Jesus says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Salvation is ultimately the result of God's sovereign choice. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now listen, in no way does this truth diminish in any sense man's responsibility when it comes to believing the gospel. Don't forget verses 12 through 16 of our passage right here. Those that hear the preaching of the gospel, those who reject the messengers of Christ are rejecting Christ, rejecting the truth, and they will be held accountable. He even says they're more accountable than others who hadn't seen all of those signs. God holds them accountable in the day of judgment for their willful rejection of him and rejection of his truth. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are not in conflict in scripture, even if we wrestle with that sometimes. But Jesus makes clear when someone does believe, when they receive the message of salvation, when they embrace Christ as God's only son and the only savior, this is evidence of God's gracious will, of his choosing, of his working in their lives. And God gets all the glory for that. There's many people who want to debate this. There's people that want to challenge this concept. It makes some of us perhaps even uncomfortable to talk about salvation in these terms. But get this. Here's what I want to draw your attention to. Jumping back in here into Luke chapter 10. How does Jesus respond 
to the truth that salvation is the result of God's gracious will and his sovereign choice. How does Jesus respond to that truth? He rejoices. Jesus delights in this. He is thrilled with joy. He overflows with thankfulness. And here's what that means for us. If Jesus rejoices in the outworking of God's sovereign grace, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we? Shouldn't we join him in celebrating and and delighting in and honoring the outworking of God's sovereign plan? It should cause us to marvel that we would say, why me? Why would God choose to show grace to me? Why would Jesus choose to reveal himself and the truth to me? I don't deserve that. It should cause us to give thanks. It should cause us to overflow in worship and praise. I love the way Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 26. He says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's how we should respond to this truth that salvation is the result of God's sovereign choice. We rejoice in God's sovereign grace. There's a third salvation reality we can rejoice in. We find it in verse 23 through 24. We rejoice in our special place in history. Our special place in history, the privilege we have to know Christ at this moment in time. Verse 23, it says, then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Blessed here means happy. It means favored. It's not the same word as joy and rejoice, but conceptually they are linked together. He says, you are blessed. The focus here remains on joy and the reason followers of Jesus have to be joyful. He says, many Many, I tell you, desired to see what you see. What is it that they're seeing? They're seeing Jesus, the promised Messiah in the flesh. They're seeing the signs that he is performing, the signs of the kingdom. They're seeing the unfolding of the good news, the gospel. That's what they're seeing. What is it that they're hearing? They're hearing the preaching of the good news. The announcement that the Messiah has come The message that the kingdom itself is near because Jesus is present. Although they are simple fishermen, although they are tax collectors from Galilee, although they are unremarkable and unimpressive and technically nobodies on the grand stage of history to this point, they get to be part of this moment in time that so many faithful believers in the past longed for. Kings like David and Solomon Prophets like Moses and Elijah and Isaiah and Daniel, those men knew bits and pieces. They'd been given the promises. 
They had enough information to know that a day was coming when God was going to act, when God was going to bring about salvation through the promised one, but they didn't get to see it. Hebrews eleven thirteen refers to the saints of old and says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Jesus is alerting the 12 to their great privilege to be present at this moment in redemptive history, to be among those who are seeing and hearing what they're seeing and hearing. Once again, Jesus draws our attention away from our own ministry on what we have done for God, away from temporary victories, away from the ups and downs, and he draws our attention to our salvation, our experience of being part of God's plan of salvation through history. We too stand in a special place in history today, you and me. It's a great privilege to be where we are at this moment. Consider for just a second the great privileges that we enjoy. We have the whole gospel, even more than what these 12 had at the moment. We know and understand the truth that Christ died for sins as a substitutionary sacrifice that he is the true Passover lamb and it's the shedding of his blood that takes away our sins. We know that Jesus rose again on the third day. We know that he ascended into heaven. We have the full gospel. Not only that, we have the whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. The fullness of God's revelation, everything we need for life and godliness is right here. Consider that we have the Holy Spirit. These 12 had not yet been filled with the Holy Spirit. Pentecost had not yet happened. They had Jesus with them, but they did not have the indwelling spirit the way that we do today as Christians on this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, this side of the book of Acts and the day of Pentecost as the spirit is poured out. Not only that, we see the growth of the church throughout 2,000 years of history, triumphing over persecution, enduring opposition, refuting false teaching that has threatened the truth of Christ at every twist and turn. The kings and the prophets of old that Jesus is talking about, they wouldn't just envy the disciples, they would envy us as well. To be where we are, to see what we see, to experience what we've experienced. I wonder if the apostle Peter had these words of Jesus in mind when he wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Peter talks about our privilege, what we have experienced that the saints of old, even the authors of Scripture in the Old Testament, they wanted to know more. The angels themselves today, they look at what we're experiencing. They are blown away by our experience of grace. There is no salvation for the angels. There is no redemption 
for the angels that rebel against God's rule. But there is for us and the angels long to look into this and to understand the mysteries and the glories of the gospel. We too are truly blessed. Blessed are you who see what you see and hear what you hear. We are favored by God to have this book, this message, the spirit of God, the knowledge of Christ that's been made clear throughout history. It is our joy and privilege to stand on the shoulders of faithful saints who have explored these mysteries and passed down the central doctrines of the faith generation by generation through the generations. We too are so, so blessed and we too can rejoice in our special place in history. So ask yourself today, what is the source of your joy? What is it that perhaps even this week has preoccupied your heart, preoccupied your mind? Perhaps you are in need of a spiritual recentering on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you need to be reminded once again of the love that has been given to you at the cross. The Apostle Paul writes, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me and the life I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul never got over the cross. The fact that Jesus loved him and gave himself for him, he said, that defines my life. Perhaps we need to refocus on the glory of salvation the eternal and glorious reality that we are loved by Christ, saved by Christ, and that because of that, our names are written in heaven. Perhaps we need to consider the great grace that God has poured out upon us in choosing to reveal his son to us. Perhaps we need to appreciate in a fresh sense where it is that we stand today in redemptive history. The great privilege it is to live on this side of the cross. Jesus commands us to rejoice, not in what we do for him, not in our experiences, not in the ups and downs of life. He calls us to rejoice in our salvation. What a kind and gracious instruction from our master that he would call us to do that. Jesus points us, urges us to linger at the cross, to marvel and to wonder at the glories of heaven that are ours and God's grace that's been given to us, the privilege it is to know him, to actually know him. May your heart be filled with joy today as you consider the salvation that is ours in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I ask that you would aid us by your spirit, by your grace to join you in rejoicing and celebrating the gracious plan of salvation that has been wrought throughout the ages. We thank you that you have opened our eyes, opened our hearts to receive the truth of the gospel. Thank you for choosing to draw us near to save us. Thank you for allowing us to live at this moment in history where we get the great privilege of the fullness of your revelation, a complete understanding of the gospel. Lord, for those of us believers who perhaps have grown overly familiar with the gospel and our salvation has become perhaps somewhat stale, it doesn't capture our gaze, it doesn't 
amaze us as it should. I pray that you would peel back the calluses on our hearts and make us sensitive to these wonders. Help us to marvel, to rejoice. And Lord, for those among us today who do not have this joy because they do not have this salvation, I pray that they would see that the only way to know God is through faith in Jesus Christ. The only way to be saved is to turn from their sin and believe in the gospel. I pray that today you would open their eyes and you would soften their hearts and you would draw them to yourself. Pour out your grace upon them so that they might experience the joy of salvation, a joy that doesn't change, a joy that does not ebb and flow because our destiny is secure, our God is faithful, and his plan is perfect. So Lord, work in, your heart, in our hearts today, we pray, that we might love you and worship you and praise you as you so richly deserve. Amen.